morning and welcome to our program, Our American Heritage. I am Art Turner, the host of the program, and it is our desire at American Heritage to explore in depth the American experience from its beginning to the present. Understanding the history of this great nation is paramount to understanding our greatness. And we're pleased to continue our discussion today with David Harmer. David, thank you for coming back to the program, and we appreciate you being with us. Arch, thank you. And uh, before you say nice things about me, I've got to say a couple nice things about you. Just oh, for our listeners, <laughs> Arch Hunter is the finest tour guide and program faculty director we've got. Oh, you're um, kind. Thank he you. Is a passionate student, not only of America's founding, but of the Civil War. And uh, when he leads a tour of Valley Forge or of Gettysburg or of any Revolutionary War battlefield, Arch knows the history inside and out and upside and down. Uh, he really brings it to life. And so, Arch, uh, just uh, um, hats off to you. Thanks for what you do. It's, a, it's really a pleasure to – I'm not sure I'm worthy, but it's a pleasure to be considered your colleague. You are. Oh, I, no, it's the opposite, David. Thank you for your kind words. I'm honored to be a colleague of yours and everything that you do for the Freedoms Foundation and to represent the Freedoms Foundation. Uh, David, if you did not hear our first show listeners, he is the president and chief executive officer of the Freedoms Foundation has been with the foundation for the past five years. I found him an absolutely delightful human being to enjoy to talk with and to, and his passion for American history and his love for his nation is very evident. And uh, we want to thank David for coming back and sharing with us. And he was talking on our first program about the Constitution and different viewpoints of the Constitution and the idea of how we overcame the slavery issue throughout our history. So, David, if you want to pick it up from there and continue, and I'm going to stop blushing here as, as quickly as I can. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Arch, if you don't mind, I think I was so excited to talk about uh, the Constitution and the upcoming semi-quincentennial of the Declaration of Independence that I, uh, I may have skipped over something just as important, which is to talk about the price that was paid to secure this nation's independence. As you mentioned, the organization I'm privileged to lead is called Freedom's Foundation at Valley Forge. Mm -hmm. Now, why is it Freedom's Foundation at Valley Forge and not at Washington, D.C. or New York or Los Angeles or whatever? Well, General Eisenhower, Dwight D. Eisenhower, was really our founding father on the Articles of Incorporation of our little civic education organization. General Eisenhower is the first incorporator listed. And he, of course, knew a thing or two about tough battles, having served as Supreme Allied Commander in World War II. And Eisenhower said that this foundation had to be headquartered in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, because it was in Valley Forge that the American experiment came closest to extinction. Hmm. But it was also in Valley Forge that the American experiment saw its finest example of character and courage in the long-suffering of the soldiers of the Continental Army and the example of their leader, General Washington. And so I wondered, Arch, if you and I might just visit a bit about what happened at Valley Forge, because to my astonishment, a lot of the rising generation really doesn't know. In fact, let me share an experience with you. A lot of big universities have a presence in Washington, D.C. You know, they'll have a, mm -hmm. a building there, maybe dorms or at least classroom and, you know, common areas. 
where students can spend a semester and maybe they'll intern on Capitol Hill or for an executive branch agency. So these are sharp students. Um, you know, these are prominent universities with students who are motivated enough to secure internships and students who care about public policy, which is why they're in Washington, D.C. So recently, just last month, I was in D.C. I was invited to speak to a group of maybe 40 students. I won't mention the university's name, but it's a prominent one and a highly regarded one. And it even has a general education requirement still of American history and civics. Well, I asked these bright young students what happened at Valley Forge. About half the faces were blank mm -hmm. and some were kind of, you know, and so the first guess was, is that where Paul Revere wrote? <laughs> um, it had something to do with the American Revolution, right? Well, yeah. Do you know what state it's in? New York? I mean, I, I was really surprised that nobody, nobody was able to identify exactly where it was or what mm -hmm. happened there. So let's just review this. I know our audience, of course, is going to know, but it's, it's always nice to kind of level set. So December 19th, 1777. Hey, let's, let's go back further than that. Remember, the revolution started in terms of the first shots being fired in April 1775, you know, on Lexington Green and then Concord Bridge. And the, the colonists, the Minutemen, send the Redcoats running. And there's great optimism that, you know, Great Britain may be the mightiest military on the face of the planet, but these colonists standing up for their rights, their lands and their properties and their families and, and their freedom send the king's soldiers running. And so there's great optimism. Well, there you know, ensues the Battle of Bunker Hill, which actually mostly happened on, on Breed Hill. And ultimately, you know, the British win technically, but it's such a costly victory that the British press is saying a few more victories like that and we'll lose the war. You know, the theater battle moves down to New York. Uh, and, you know, fast forward a year, 1776, Congress promulgates the Declaration of Independence. And there's great optimism that independence will be secured quickly. Well, of course, it wasn't. It took eight long, arduous years of the Revolutionary War. And for much of that time, you know, uh, Washington and his troops, the objective wasn't to win so much as just to survive, to live to fight another day. And especially in 1777, there was just a long string of defeats, and they were demoralizing. And so uh, Washington, with the bedraggled troops of the Continental Army, December 19, 1777, they marched into Valley Forge. And in fact, they camped just a few minutes' walk through the woods south of where I'm speaking to you right now. Snow began to fall. The weather worsened. I mean, remember, this is still during the Little Ice Age. The Little Ice Age didn't really end until 1850s or so. So, you know, winter's not all that pleasant now, but it was worse back then. Well, the weather worsened from cold to bitter to just brutal. Washington, though, refuses to take better shelter than his men. He insists on camping in a canvas tent just like them. That goes on for a week, but uh, heavy snow, especially on Christmas Day, just made it impossible to conduct the Army's business there. He was living in a mud pit. So he did something unprecedented. I mean, he pays fair market value to rent a modest stone home, the Isaac Potts home, and that becomes his headquarters, shared with his staff. The men of the Continental Army were hungry, at times starving. The specter of famine haunted the camp. More than once, they ran out of meat. They ran out of everything else, too. The men were cold. Thousands of them lacked coats, wearing only thin blankets or shawls. Thousands lacked boots. Many resorted to rags tied around their feet, leaving bloody footprints in the snow. The men are poorly sheltered. 
I mean, they moved tents into hastily constructed log huts, typically a dozen soldiers in each, but it's still cold. Estimates vary, and you would know the numbers better than I do, but it's estimated that at least 3,000 men of the Continental Army died in the winter of 1777 to 78. There was no battle, at least not against the British. They died of disease. They died of exposure. They were weakened through cold and malnutrition. And meanwhile, the British have taken Philadelphia. Now, America isn't a nation yet, but Philadelphia is the biggest city in the 13 colonies. It's the seat of the Continental Congress. So it's our de facto capital. And the British troops have taken Philadelphia, and they are fat and happy. I mean, not only are they well-clothed and well-fed and well-housed and warm, they've got time for dances and parties, and, you know, most of the senior officers have mistresses. And, you know, for that matter, while cash was tight, American civilians in general were living much better than the soldiers of the Continental Army. In letters home, British regulars and the Hessian mercenaries alike commented on the wealth of the yeoman, you know, the average farmer has his own land and, and barns and flocks and fields and uh, wife and children, and they're well fed. But little of that prosperity reaches the army. Congress repeatedly failed to provide. The, uh, Congress was monks in arrears on paying the men. And when Congress did act, a corruption and ineptitude in the commissary and quartermaster departments generally meant that urgently needed provisions reached Washington's men late or not at all. Well, Washington is trying to negotiate these travails. I mean, he can't publicly say how bad things are because that's going to tempt the British to come up and wipe them out. So Washington's got to maintain a brave face, even as the army is just in danger of dissolving underneath him. Starvation has a way of preoccupying mm-hmm. you, and it doesn't matter what you're fighting for or what the future reward might be. If you need to eat and you're not getting fed, you're going to go look for food. So even as Washington is walking this tightrope, he's the subject of backbiting and second-guessing and, and undermining a cabal that includes several members of Congress and even some of his own officers overtly attempted to depose and replace him. So things are pretty bleak. Now, Imagine the temptation for the troops to seek a strong man, you know, the guy who comes riding in on the white horse and he's going to put things right. Imagine the temptation for Washington to become one. This guy's the ultimate alpha male. You know, in, in a day when the average soldier might be 5'6", five, 5'8", five, he was 6'4". Just a magnificent specimen of masculinity. A phenomenal horseman. Tall, strong, handsome, powerful. And a great entrepreneur. He wasn't wealthy just because he married Martha. He was wealthy because he was a brilliant entrepreneur. He really was innovative, did all kinds of manufactures at, uh, at Mount Vernon. Early promoter of crop rotation and soil replenishment and so on. So Washington knew, you know, how to run things. But he was so, for all his physical and political strength, he was remarkably humble and deferential to civilian authority. I mentioned, I think, in our previous podcast that Dwight D. Eisenhower, just five years after D-Day, spoke here on our campus and got a little excerpt here. Let me quote from him. Remember, he hasn't been elected president yet. That won't come till 1952. This is 1949, the year of our founding. And future President Eisenhower, you know, recently having completed his work as Supreme Allied Commander, he comes to Valley Forge and he says, Meeting on this spot, it is difficult to avoid giving way to emotions so intense as to still the tongue 
and to leave any American silently mm. grateful, humble, reverent. Now, Eisenhower wasn't renowned as an orator, but you read his first talk here on the Freedom's Foundation campus, and it's poetry. Mm -hmm. He goes on to say, here Washington waged and won the greatest fight of a fighting career. The long winter of the Valley Forge encampment brought to his army the last ounce of endurable suffering. While Washington was called to bear collapse in his rear, desertion in his ranks, hostility in his associates. The freedom of the American people here experienced its greatest danger of extinction. Here met its sternest challenge. Now, I, you've been so patient with me. I've, I've taken longer setting the table here than I, I, I meant to, but, but here's the point I'm driving toward. The Constitution, many of the participants in the Constitutional Convention considered the outcome miraculous and said so. They thought only the hand of providence could have brought about the unity and comity that resulted in the adoption of the Constitution. And there's no question that that document is magnificent, nothing like it in history. And it builds on the ideals set forth in the Declaration of Independence. But none of that would have mattered. It would be a footnote in history if that. If it weren't for the fact that Washington and those yes. long-suffering mm -hmm. soldiers endured the winter in Valley Forge, and it just demonstrates that ultimately character is destiny. It's not enough to have the document. You've got to have a people with civic virtues embedded in their hearts and souls. You know, Washington's deference to civilian authority, his humility, notwithstanding his power and prestige, his devotion to the cause, the willingness of the men even when they weren't being fed or clothed or equipped or paid to stick with him because of the inspiration of his example. That's at the root of the American founding and all these wonderful lofty ideals and these intricate mechanisms designed to preserve government of the people, by the people, mm -hmm. for the people. We owe thanks to Washington and those who bore the burden of the battle. And so I, I just wanted to express my admiration for them and my recognition that the blessings of liberty and prosperity and security that we've enjoyed ever since, we owe an incalculable debt of gratitude to them. And King George later on, David said that, and remember, King George was not our friend. He finally admitted, he said that George Washington must be the greatest man that's ever lived if he's able to give up that much power. You know, that's just such a, a great scene. Uh, yeah, the army's come close to dissolving, but it's, you know, it's replenished and then enlarged. They emerge from Valley Forge stronger, more disciplined, more effective. After eight long years, they finally, you know, Washington finally has his opportunity and he's ready to grasp that he captures Cornwallis at Yorktown. The fledgling United States have prevailed over the greatest military power on the planet. And then, yes, as you say, remarkably, Washington relinquishes power. He returns to Congress and he hands back to them physically his original parchment commission, mm -hmm. unprecedented. Yep. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, he was the founding father, the one nationwide political figure, and he voluntarily relinquishes it. 
asks for nothing but his expenses to be covered and, and returns to his home. Unprecedented. Unprecedented. Uh, and at the end of his presidency, out standing outside the state house, the, the morning that John Adams and Jefferson were inaugurated, his last public words to us as civilians as president is he said, I stand here, your president. I will leave here a common citizen of America. That is why we fought the revolution. Yes. You know, uh, Thomas Jefferson, who candidly, his behavior toward Washington really was reprehensible. Mm -hmm. But but Jefferson acknowledged, uh, he said, (laughs) the moderation and virtue of a single character, meaning Washington, of course, prevented this revolution from being closed, as most others have been, by a subversion of that liberty it was intended to establish. In other words, typically what happens when a revolution succeeds is the military leader that led it Mm -hmm. to success now becomes a new tyrant. And, you know, the history is just full of those. Right. But uh, true friends of freedom have always been few. For every thousand who enjoy the blessings of it, there's only one or two who fight for it. And But Washington was something extraordinary. Absolutely. Who in history had voluntarily relinquished such power? Amazing. Share with our listeners, David, if you would, the ideals of the foundation and what the Freedoms Foundation is doing to educate the children, the teenagers and teachers of America in these ideals that you and I have been talking about. Glad to, Arch. Freedoms Foundation was established in 1949, so almost 75 years ago now by a group of concerned citizens, foremost among whom was uh, General Dwight D. Eisenhower. And the purpose of the foundation was to create and build an understanding of the spirit and philosophy of America's founding ideals as articulated in its founding documents, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. So to accomplish that, during the school year, we bring students from around the country here to Valley Forge for On campus, we've got a boys' dorm and a girls' dorm, a classroom building and a dining hall, non-denominational chapel, and so on. We've got a beautiful 75-acre campus that borders Valley Forge National Historical Park. And so we bring students here from coast to coast and throughout the nation, and they get to experience the places where history happened. And I don't know about you, but you know, I've got finite patience for lectures. We try and just immerse the students in the experience of the founding as much mm-hmm. as possible. So I'll yes. give you an example. You know, the kids are sitting in a classroom. They're thinking maybe somebody's going to come lecture at them when through the door burst Thomas Jefferson and mm-hmm. John Adams. Now, these are professional actors from the American Historical Theater who've been doing this for us for years. And they look and act and just embody the parts. Our Jefferson is this long, lean, lanky, taciturn Virginian. And our Adams is this short, crotchety, balding New Englander. <laughs> and they come in just in heated debate. And they're ignoring the kids. You know what? We don't need to tell anybody to put down their phones or electronic right. devices or pay attention. The, the kids, you know, I mean, they're, they're drawn in. And Jefferson and Adams will argue hard, butt heads for five or ten minutes. And then... One of them will say, who's with me? You know, and, and half the kids will put their hands up. They're just, they're drawn in. So we give them experiences in, in what the founding was like. Um, Eisenhower, you know, I mentioned that he, he felt so reverent toward Valley Forge because he felt it was here the American experiment had come closest to extinction. 
But he went on to say in that same speech that he expressed his conviction that the American experiment with worthy disciples, he said, would never again come so close uh, to extinction, to failure, that uh, the American dream would prevail. Well, with worthy disciples, that's our job. That's what Mm -hmm. we do. We create those disciples. We bring kids here. And we don't just inform them, we transform them. We, we give them a, a vision, not just, there's plenty of people demanding the rights of citizenship. We motivate students to embrace the corresponding responsibilities. That's our work. Anybody who's interested in this, our website is freedomsfoundation.org. That's freedoms, plural, foundation.org. But I mean, give us a visit. And uh, if this is something that animates you, we welcome you getting involved. And listeners, it's a privilege for me to be involved with the foundation all these years. And after my first year of teaching, I took a class that was put on by the Freedoms Foundation, and it radically changed my teaching for the rest of my career. And it's been a privilege for me to be able to be part of the Freedoms Foundation over these past many years. And David, we not only we, meaning the Freedoms Foundation, are not only educating kids, but now we can also, and for a long time, we bring teachers in during the summer that they get inspired, they see the differences, they understand things differently about the teaching of our country. They go back into their classrooms and have that influence all over the nation. And that's just a a great, great feeling when we see that taking place. It is just a joy to host teachers here. And I can't tell you how often, you know, at the end of the week, teachers will come, they've just got a sparkle back in their eyes Mm -hmm. and a bounce in their steps. And they tell me that this is going to transform their teaching for the rest of their career. Absolutely. They're now equipped to inspire their students in a way that they never were before. Absolutely. And David, as we close out this segment, forgive me for going out on the thin ice here. Would you share the story of that 12-year-old boy that got that jelly bean many years ago? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I... uh, Arch very kindly asked me in our, our previous show to tell a bit about myself. And I, I told about my, my mom, um, you know, raising 10 kids is no small achievement. But uh, my dad was a patriot, too. He served, uh, among other things, as lieutenant governor of California under Governor Ronald Reagan. Now, the downside of that was uh, he was gone an awful lot. Uh, but the upside was every couple months he'd bring me out of school for the day and just let me shadow him at the state capitol. And so when dad had meetings with Reagan, I got to come along. And uh, I can tell you that um, Reagan was in person exactly what he seemed to be mm. in public. He was friendly, genial, avuncular, and uh, always seemed genuinely delighted to have a kid in his office. He uh, he had gubernatorial jelly belly jars, these great big padded <laughs> leather devices with uh, jelly bellies, which are the ultimate gourmet jelly beans in them. <laughs> and so one of my most treasured possessions uh, is a, a framed picture of Governor Reagan solemnly uh, bending over, uh, holding open one of his jelly belly jars for me. And with equal solemnity, I am thrusting a fist in. And, uh, <laughs> so... Uh, I uh, I I thank my uh, my late father for introducing me to Governor Reagan and uh, my sweet mom for uh, introducing me virtually to the uh, America's founders. Yes. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time, listeners. 
Listeners, David Harmer, the president and CEO of the Freedoms Foundation of Valley Forge, please come and visit the foundation, that Medal of Honor Grove, and see what you can do to get involved to continue the influence the Freedoms Foundation has to the kids of America and also to the teachers of America. So, David, thank you for coming and sharing these two programs and sharing some of your vision for America and your your zeal to continue to help Americans understand their heritage. So thank you for coming and sharing with us. And thank you for leading the Freedom Foundation these past years. And we hope you do it for another 50. <laughs> thank you, Lars. This has been great fun. Well, thank you so much for coming again, sharing with us. This is 1180 AM WFYL, Working for Your Liberty.